0: Um, I'm not going to lie, I feel a little bit like Beyonce, getting to do a wardrobe change, like right in the middle. Um, So that's kind of cool. Like I'm just in a moment of complete transparency. Uh, If you would give me just a quick moment of pastoral privilege. We have had... Some incredible opportunities to already worship this morning. We've also had opportunities to celebrate some of the other congregations within our church family. We here at the church at Logan Springs, are blessed to be a part of a much larger church family. Um, if you are new with us or you haven't been with us long, and you want to get to know a little bit more about this specific local expression of the body of Christ, this specific church family, we've got a great opportunity for you to do so next week. We're going to be having one of our family meals. Uh, it's just a family lunch after church in the commons right down the hall here. We do it potluck style, it meets immediately after the service. If, if you're able, you want to bring some food, that's great. If you're not able, that's also fine. We would love to have you. It is super low impact, no strings attached, just a great time to sit and get to know people. Uh, We would love to see you next week. Over these last few weeks, we have been starting in what is going to be a month's long journey walking together through the gospel of John. We're starting that journey exploring who Jesus is. Last week, we looked at one of the signs of John, one of those signs that, that point toward Jesus as the Messiah, as the Savior, the famous feeding of the 5,000. Jesus up on the hill, we all, we all know it wasn't 5,000, it was probably closer to 15 or 20,000. He, he takes the bread, he takes the fish from the little boy, multiplies miraculously, that bread and that fish, to feed the multitude of people. Now, when, when Jesus, after that miracle, recognizes what those people are thinking, they want to make him king. They want him to be the one that brings Israel back to a place of prominence and power. He, he recognizes what they, what they want from him, so he retreats once again to be by himself. The crowd finds him on the other side of the Sea of Galilee the next day it's in that moment that he teaches them. He says, you don't really want me, you just want the miracles. You want bread that will sustain you for a day, but I'm the bread that will sustain you forever. That's John chapter 6. Now, as we went over that story last week, we left out a wee little part right in the middle. Jesus on one side of the Sea of Galilee, feeding 20,000 people. Jesus on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, explaining to them that they're looking for a miracle and he is that miracle. What we didn't really talk about was John chapter 6, 16 through 21, which is the story of how they got from point A to point B. That is the story we're going to look at this morning. If you have your Bibles, I would love for you to open to John chapter 6. We're going to begin reading in, at verse 16, as we do each week in this place. I would love if you stand with me as we read God's Word. John writes, When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. Darkness had already set in, but Jesus had not yet come to them. A high wind arose, and the sea began to churn. After they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea. He was coming near the boat, and they were afraid. But he said to them, it is I, don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him on board, and at once the boat was at shore where they were heading. Lord, as we pray each week, we are humbled and we are amazed by your presence with us in this place and grateful beyond measure that your presence is not relegated to the bricks and the mortar of this building. Never let us lose sight of the miracle that we hold in our hands, the living word of the living God, and we humbly ask, speak now, for your servants are listening. Amen. Y'all can be seated. <clears throat> Jesus walking on water. We kind of skipped over that part last week. It's, it's a little bit of a big deal. It's a thing that we should probably talk about on some level. But, but let's start with the fact that, that this is a, a very real story with real tangible things happening. If you remember, after Jesus feeds the multitude, he retreats to be by himself as was his normal rhythm in life and ministry. He had obviously told his disciples kind of what the plan was, where they were going next. They waited down by the shores of the Sea of Galilee. Sea of Galilee, it's a very real place. You could go there right now. It is not a sea. It is a lake, but it's a big lake, 64 square miles. It's 13 miles long, 8 miles across. Like It is a massive body of water. Jesus' disciples grew up in and around the Sea of Galilee. Several of them were fishermen. They would have been incredibly familiar with this sea. The idea of getting in a boat and going across to the other side was not a big deal to any of them. We also, in in this story, see this storm that kind of seems to come up out of nowhere. That is also an incredibly real and common phenomenon in this area. The Sea of Galilee is the the second lowest relative to sea level lake in the world. It's the lowest freshwater lake in the world. And it's surrounded by these hills. The hills we're familiar with from the stories in the Gospels. You know, the the Sermon on the Mount took place on one of these hills. The feeding of the 5,000 had just taken place on one of these hills. But because of the topography, very low-lying water with the hills around it, It was not uncommon for these gale-force winds to come up over the hills, sink down into the bowl that was the Sea of Galilee, prone to sudden and violent storms. Waves up to 10 feet have been measured on the Sea of Galilee. All of the things that John tells us about in this story are, are very tangible, very real phenomenon. Now, there are also Some incredible symbolism in John's words and imagery. Remember, John chapter 20, John chapter 21, he tells us that if if the whole world was a library, it couldn't contain enough books to write down everything that Jesus did. So John says, I have specifically chosen to tell you these things so that you may see, so that you may be pointed toward Jesus as your Savior, as the Messiah, so that you may believe and have eternal life. Everything John writes down is incredibly intentional. So when he he tells us there in, in verse 17 that darkness had already set in, He's just throwing in a random detail. He wants us to know that it's dark. John is a gospel of contrasts. He uses extremes, oftentimes things like light and dark to make a point. We see it as early as the first few verses of this gospel. John chapter 1, verse 5, if you remember, lightness, light pierced the darkness, and the darkness could not overcome it. When John tells us, when they got in that boat, it was dark. When they're rowing across the sea, it is dark. That means something. John wants us to understand what he's talking about, the darkness that they were in. Even the storm is just dripping with meaning and symbolism. Those cultures in the ancient Near East, um, as with most historic cultures, recognize not only open bodies of water like the Sea of Galilee, but specifically See storms, stormy waters, as emblematic symbols of the unknown, the uncontrollable, the chaos that is in the world. Now in that chaos in John chapter 6, in that unknowable darkness, in that uncontrollable storm, suddenly there is Jesus. So often when we read passages like this, we turn these scenes into children's stories. The loaves and the fishes. Jesus calmly walking on water. It is anything but that. From the library of stories that John could have chosen, he wants us To see Jesus walking not only on water, but walking through the storm. I have no way of knowing why most of you are here. There is a multitude of reasons that people show up in a church building on Sunday mornings. I know that all of us have at least two things in common. One, every one of us recognizes on some level that something is wrong. We may not be able to articulate it. We may not be able to put our finger on it. We may have different ideas or beliefs of what that thing is. But we all know that that it's not supposed to be like this. Secondly, Every one of us knows what it is like to be in the midst of the storm. Powerless, rudderless, completely adrift at the mercy of the wind and the waves. Now, sometimes we might experience a storm of our own making. We've all been there. Well, 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 if it isn't the consequences of my own poor decisions. Other times, we experience the storm that appears suddenly on previously calm waters. We had nothing to to cause it. We have no idea how we got in that place. That phone call at 3 a.m., the unexpected diagnosis, the impromptu call into your boss's office, and as soon as you see the look on his face, you know exactly what's coming. The good news is that Jesus Christ is the Lord of both of those storms. Jesus Christ is the Lord of the storm that we created. Jesus Christ is the Lord of the storm that we never expected. There is nothing unknown to him. There is nothing uncontrollable to him. There is no storm of which he is not the master. Here we have his disciples, his closest friends and followers in a boat. Three or four miles out in the dead center of the Sea of Galilee. If any of you have ever been... In a body of water that large, if you've ever been deep sea fishing and you've been four miles from the shore, that's a fur piece. It's different. You like that? You're with me, Jordan. That's for you, buddy. Um, It's different when you're on water and you're four miles from shore than when you're on land and you're four miles away. It's the middle of nowhere, completely isolated. Suddenly, a storm wells up, 10-foot waves around them, wind all over the place. They were fishermen. They were familiar with the lake. They knew what was up, and they knew it was bad news. And in the middle of all of that, suddenly there is Jesus walking on water, strolling through the storm. Now look at what he says when he arrives. Look back with me at verse 20. Jesus said to them, It is I. It's, it's kind of a super weird opening line, isn't it? Like imagine, imagine just a friend of yours busting into a room and, and, and his first words are, it, it is I. It's a little bit cringy, right? Um, The problem is, this is a perhaps necessary but definitely terrible translation of his original words. You see, in the Greek, that clause is, is only two words. The literal translation is, I am. Now, those of us that have studied the Bible on some level, immediately recognize those words. Immediately recognize the power and the meaning of those words. I am. You see, this is the divine name. This is the same name that God gave himself. In Exodus chapter 3, Moses is at the burning bush. Terrified. But but if I go back to to Egypt and I tell them I talked to you, what if they ask me what your name is? What do I say? Who do I say I have spoken with? I am. In this moment, in John chapter 6, on, literally on, the Sea of Galilee, Jesus gives the divine name as his name. In this moment, Jesus declares his divinity. He claims not to be like God, not to be part God, not to be a God. I am. This is his declaration that he is the God. The one and only creator of the universe. I am because I was has no meaning relative to me because I have no beginning. I am because I will be is equally meaningless because I will never change. I am because I am. Now look at. The reaction of the disciples in this moment look back at verse 19. If you guys have you ever like seen those signs where two words are intentionally out of order but you don't notice it because your brain is so familiar with the language your brain just automatically reads it in the right order you don't, you don't notice it till somebody points it out that's what we do with verse 19. The problem is it's, it's not in the wrong order. It's in the right order, and we take it out of order. The storm had swelled up around the disciples. A high wind arose in verse 18. The sea began to churn. Verse 19, after they had rowed about three or four miles, they're sitting in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. They saw Jesus walking on the sea. He was coming near the boats, and they were afraid. The implication of John chapter 6 verse 19 is the disciples in that boat were more afraid of Jesus than they were of the storm. Now remember, they would have been incredibly familiar with that boat. They would have been incredibly familiar with that body of water. They would have been incredibly familiar with the storms that could arise out of nowhere. They realized the danger of the storm, but they knew that it was of this world. They didn't relish it, but they recognized it. As Jesus arrives walking on water in the midst of the storm, they have no context for that power. As Jesus arrives on the scene in the middle of the storm, He is beyond their ability to comprehend. He is something entirely other. He is something holy and beyond them. Throughout the Bible, throughout human history, the holiness of God has inspired fear. Now, it's largely an awe-based fear. This, this recognition of power, his power highlights my weakness. You're suddenly made aware of how small and insignificant you are. Those men in that boat, in the middle of the night, in the middle of the sea, in the middle of the storm, were suddenly in the presence of the holy God and they recognized that they were entirely unworthy. And they were afraid. The real miracle of this passage, the profound miracle that has eternal consequences, is not Jesus walking on water. That's the sign that points us to the Messiah. The miracle is what Jesus says next. I am. Don't be afraid. I am, don't be afraid. It's so easy to blow past those words or to write them off as these kind of amazing, profound words of comfort. This picture of Jesus walking on water in the middle of the storm and coming to his friends and disciples and saying, Guys, it's okay, I'm here. Everything's going to be all right. That's not this. This is so much more. Tim Keller points out that throughout the Old Testament, anytime God declares himself, I am, he never follows it with this. The burning bush, I, I am. Now take off your shoes. This is holy ground. You will respect it. I am, and I'm coming to Mount Sinai. All of you are sinners. If one foot touches this mountain, you will be destroyed. I am. Don't look at me. Turn your back in my presence. When Jesus declares himself, I am, he says, just the opposite, I am. You don't have to be afraid anymore. It is a massive, shocking, history-changing statement. Jesus in this moment confirms his deity. He is the living God. But no longer do you have to fear my presence In fact, you don't have to be afraid at all. I am. And you couldn't get to me, so I came to you. I am and I have made a way so that you can be with me forever. I am am when the waters are calm. I am in the midst of the storm. I am with you always. This morning, as Charlie and the worship team come back up to lead us Once again in worship, I want to take a few moments. A few moments for us to pray, yes, together, but I also want to give us space to be in the presence of our Creator, of our Savior. There is no magic posture. But I would ask that you take just a second. Get yourself comfortable. Bow your head if it helps rid you of any distractions. We'll play some quiet music in the background so that we're not distracted by the deafening silence. Take a moment, acknowledge the storm. Be it a storm of your own creation, a storm you never expected or deserved. Now be grateful for the presence of Jesus in the midst of that storm. Self to be in awe of the Holy Sovereign Lord. Celebrate no longer have to be afraid because he has made a way. Lord, we are grateful beyond the ability to articulate As you are the Lord of the storm. We are grateful for your presence. We are awed by your holiness. Celebrate that you've made a way for us to be with you forever. We pray these things in your name. Amen.